I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Aaron Scala on the show today from Public Restaurant in the Daily. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm so glad to be here. Nice to see you. Thank you, you too. So let's talk a little bit about Aaron. I mean, you were doing some musical studies in college? Yeah, yeah. Um, I played the drums my whole life pretty much. Xylophone, marimba mallet percussion, drum set, Latin percussion. And um, that's how I started out in the world. I guess. <laughs> Traveled all around and uh, went, did a bunch of, um, you know, went to many different countries, studied drums here and there and kind of didn't know it, but was learning about beverages at the same time. Because <laughs> you were traveling through different areas like Spain where they had some interesting local beverages and you're like, hmm, mighty tasty. Exactly. Yeah. And then I put all that information uh, under my belt and then I got into restaurants and, and uh, there's... That's how it all started. <laughs> what was the first restaurant job? Okay, first restaurant job was... <laughs> okay, I was a tortillera at Don Pablo's restaurant in the suburbs. <laughs> oh, nice. Me too. <laughs> no, <Nuh-uh>, not really. <laughs> this place... Mine was much worse than that. Oh. <laughs> I knew this guy who worked at a Belgian restaurant. And he had to dress up like a monk. That's, I think, the... That, that was your first cake. restaurant? No, but that, that was a guy I knew. Oh, man. Can you imagine? Wow. Looking like Friar Tuck, taking orders. I wonder if he had... Hey, you done with that? <laughs> did, you, did you have to like serve Frangelico all day long? Well, probably, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, how was that experience for you? Oh, my God, it was fantastic. I mean, I was young. I didn't know what was going on. and But I learned how to make a mean tortilla. And uh, it was so cool because the tortilla stand was right in the middle of the restaurant. So you would, fl- I would flip them. And I did shows and the little kids would come by. And um, I actually started to uh, cut people's... Um, like profiles out of tortillas. And I did all this like crazy tortilla no art. No way. Yeah. And it was so cool because the parents would come. I think I was making like $7 an hour. But the parents would come up and they'd give me a tip. And I'd be like, man, I'm so rich. I just made like $5. <laughs> so that's kind of how it all started. Um, and where did I go from there? Gosh. Oh, and then I worked at like an Italian restaurant. 
making salads and desserts. Profiles out of spaghetti. That kind of, <laughs> well, that was actually like plating the desserts was so much fun because they gave you the squeeze bottles of the raspberry yeah. and the chocolate sauce and you made the designs. You know what I'm talking about? I do. I, I was dots. there for that era. Yes. Yeah. With the toothpick. Did you rock the mm, toothpick? Oh yeah. Did some marbleization. That's nice. what I'm talking nice. about. Yeah. Do you, you ever do like happy birthday stuff? Get the calligraphy out? Well, yeah, I did all kinds of fun stuff. And uh, my so my mom was an artist, so I would always get like crazy with the desserts, and uh, and they would be like, "This, these are the best desserts I've ever seen." Um, so yeah. So kind of, it sounds like immediately you were kind of connecting with customers on that personal level. I mean, it sounds like even though you were dealing with food a lot, you were like making that connection, which is something I noticed you're really good at now. So. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I love talking to people. That's what I mean. That's what we're on Earth for. I think is to meet other cool people and hang out and learn stuff. And so <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your gig now. You're at, you're, okay. you're at public and you're, yeah, you're doing public. the wine side, which is a restaurant in Nolita. Uh-huh. And in, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no. It's so it's right near the new museum and it's on this really cool street called Elizabeth street. Tons of history there, right? One street over from the Bowery. Um, and it's an amazing space. It's just an incredible restaurant. And when you walk in, you just feel wowed by how gorgeous it is. It's it is pretty most, nice. Pretty stylish. Yeah. One of those beautiful restaurants I've ever been in. And it's it's cool because you a lot of us don't think of design in our daily lives. But when you walk in there every day, you just feel so good going to work. It's it's a great feeling. You know what I mean? So I I love going. It's Public is the only job I've ever really had where I like can't wait to get to work. You know? Because it's awesome and everyone's so cool and everyone's so nice and it's so much fun. And I just like literally, I just get out of bed and I like race to the subway and I'm like, oh, I gotta get this to work. Um, but, but there's also like cool like functionality of the design. Like the yes. way that the two tops can slide and become four tops. Like they're on a bar and they yeah. can just, you can just move them together or that can become a six or you don't have to like move the table around. It's it's really simple. You just push it down, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Slip sliding tables around. It's it, I mean, someone thought about it and was yes. like, hey, this is the reality of a restaurant. Why don't we make that reality easier and cooler looking? Exactly. Lots of thinking went went on there. And uh, there, <laughs> there's also these like panels that come out with, that are screens. So you can create like rooms and spaces within the spaces. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, I feel like there's a few of that that I've seen in different iterations. It's almost kind of like a museum in a way that you can kind of like, okay, this is the new gallery over here. You know what I mean? Like on a, for a temporary exhibit or something. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's kind of based around the idea of public spaces. So like post offices and train stations. And you got it. Yeah. We have, uh, we bought these um, amazing antique post office boxes that actually is the wine club. Oh, okay. People rent a little box and uh, every month I put a wine in it with a little note about it. So it's really fun. And what's the wine program like there? Well, the wine program is a global program. We have about 350 bottles on the list, but it really focuses on Australia and New Zealand. And um, we're the only Michelin star restaurant in the world to do such a thing. So it's pretty, it's pretty um, visionary and interesting and and unique. And I can't say it was my idea because I, it's not. <laughs> but um, ten years ago, they started the program with this in mind, and um, I took it over about a year and a half, two years ago, some, somewhere around there. Uh, and it's just been such an amazing experience working with a list like that um, because there's where do you get the chance to do that you know almost nowhere you can go and really experience and explore australia new zealand wines like you can at public 
Because there is a level where you don't see Australian wine on a lot of lists now like you used to a few years ago. So it's almost like if you really want to get into it, it you, there's not so many places. Mm-hmm. That's true. And that's there's a lot of reasons why that's the case. I, um, what do you think about that? About Australian wines not being in the U.S. market? Yeah. Well, um, there's, a, there's so many reasons why. And the most important reason, I think, is the loss of strength of the dollar. Because... Australia is so far around the world. So as soon as the dollar goes down, Australian wines become twice as expensive for everybody else. And then it costs more to ship them here. And then you have to charge more for them. And I've seen, even in just the short time that I've been at public, I've seen bottles, uh, a really nice Australian bottle of wine go from $30 to $50. Wholesale. Yeah. uh And uh, it's crazy. And then when you, when you mark it up on your list, it's just, you outprice a lot of your market. So it's, it's no longer in that sweet spot range that people want to spend for dinner. Exactly. So it's uh, it's tough, and you um, it's tough to get like really awesome good bottles. I, I feel like I always have to be real creative, uh, and and give people deals on the higher end stuff because um, because it's just you know I want people to come and enjoy the bottles. I don't want to like just outprice everybody because the dollar happens to be weak. Um, but there's there's other ways too, and I think there's a, a little bit of a revolution going on. So. Um, about five years ago, I think, right right when the whole economy was starting to go down, Australian wines were up for a while. The economy tanks. Um, and then when the economy tanks, people are going to buy, you know, wines they're familiar with that are less expensive. So people are going to be less willing to experiment, essentially. If you have $50 and you're going to buy a bottle of wine, you want to know and make sure it's good and you're not going to take a risk. So... Um, and the public wine list is pretty risky for most people that come in because they just don't um, they're not familiar with a lot of the wines. Uh, and then this affected the importer side of things because I'd noticed that all the Australian portfolios at the major importers and distributors started to get dropped and moved around. And um, Quite a bit. Oh, yeah. And I feel like more than other wine directors in the city, I call up and they're, they're like, oh, you know what? We, we, lo- we dropped that. Um, I think it moved over here. So then I have to keep calling and finding out who has it. Uh, do you have seven? But then they'll be like, we have four cases left if you want them. And it's always crazy because you're buying the same wine from a couple different people. And, and prices change based on that. And Exactly. And I think that it was uh, pretty crazy for about a year. And now it's settling out again. And now there's almost um, a renewed interest in Australian and New Zealand wine that I'm noticing, which is, is pretty cool. Is that fun to be in the driver's seat of an Australian program as there's interest starting to build once again? It's the most incredible and coolest experience. I can't even tell you how cool it is because, um, you know, you'll taste through these wines and you'll think, oh, that's amazing. That's cool. That's so cool. And then you'll you'll get them on the list and you'll get it set up and you'll start telling people about it. And then suddenly it'll get some news coverage or news press about this awesome wine from Australia. And you're just like, it makes me beaming proud to know that it's already like up on our display and uh, and bottles are being opened every night of that bottle. It's pretty cool. So you do Australia and New Zealand. How do you see the differences between the two wine markets? Well, there's different as night and day, really. And it's kind of funny because they're so close to each other. So you'd think that there'd be a lot of similarities between Australia and New Zealand, but really there aren't. And what's uh, what's fascinating to me about that is that it gives me a lot of room to play and have a lot of fun on the wine list. Um, ultimately, Australia is one of the world's oldest land masses. It's from the original uh, major continent that was split apart and then kind of floated down where it is today. Um, and the soils are super old, uh, really 
interesting um, depleted soils. So you can get, uh, when you plant vines on these like 50 million year old soils, you can get some of the most incredible wine because the vines are struggling so hard because there's no nutrients left in them. Um, so Australia contrasts this old, super old land um, with New Zealand, which is a newer landmass. It's only been around um, like many millions of years less than Australia. It came up out of the ocean, uh, I think, 23 million years ago, but don't quote me on that. Uh, so New Zealand comes up out of the ocean. Australia's already been there. Um, Australia gets inhabited thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. New Zealand is like this crazy, awesome museum place where uh, ecology and flora and fauna all evolve together in, a, in literally a bubble. And um, the plant life there is fascinating, interesting, uh, so unique. The animal life is also fascinating and interesting. Um, and the, the birds in New Zealand are incredible. New Zealand was inhabited by these giant birds for the longest time. Uh, and, then, and then New Zealand was um, populated by humans, uh, I think a couple thousand years ago, by the Maori from Indonesia. When was the Lord of the Rings era for New Zealand? Was that? <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. Um, well, that was in a parallel universe <laughs> <laughs> that you can only unlock with a ring. <laughs> no, but that Saracen guy who makes wine in New Zealand, like he's involved with the, the shooting of those and stuff. I think. Yeah. Like the, uh -huh. on the movie side. Yeah. He is a, a really cool and fascinating guy. Is that true? Yeah. Uh -huh. Does he, like you guys make a private label with him or something? We do. Yeah. So he, uh, so Saracen, um, they're based in Marlboro and they do organic and farming with some biodynamic, uh, elements and they make primarily um, Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Noir and they're delicious wines. Uh, some of the single vineyard Pinot Noirs are just beautiful. And uh, we teamed up with them and they're making our own label Sauvignon Blanc and our own label Pinot Noir. And it's really an awesome experience. What is the reception to New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc now? Because I remember a few years ago it was extraordinarily popular. I don't know. What's it like now to sell? That's a good question. Um, it's... <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about, that the, that uh, excitement about New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc maybe five, ten years ago. And it's because of that, it's New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc has a major following right now. Um, but a lot of people, people that come into the restaurant, I notice they either want New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc or they don't want New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's sort of one or the other because it's such a unique wine. It's so, so intense, so powerful, so unique, so interesting, so... Um, giving and pregnant with aromas and flavors that uh, some people, people just like that or they hate it. So um, we, I have a nice selection. I taste a lot of New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs every day. <laughs> and uh, and some, once in a while, one will stand out that's just amazing. Um, so I try, to, I try to pick those ones for the wine list. Really special, usually like smaller single vineyard ones um, that are really expressive and, and really interesting. And there are some of those. I mean, I, oh, I don't, yeah. I don't mm -hmm. know so much about the category. So do you find that it's getting a little bit more niched out, like people are doing some more um, like artisanal level New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc? Yeah. The, so the New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc is um, such a popular item, I think, globally that um, you get a lot of large producers kind of doing big things. But it's really not that big of a region. So there's only so much large production that you have there. Um, but there are starting to be these really incredible uh, small producers that are, you know, doing really great farming methods um, and, you know, experimenting with uh, all kinds of things like barrel fermentation, steel fermentation, um, fermenting at different temperatures, natural fermentations. It's all kinds of things. And uh, the more um, the more focus that I – the way I see it is 
the more people focus people put into the farming, the, usually the better the wine is. So I always look for like really good farmers is in Marlboro. So and and I mean, is it different selecting Australian wine from New Zealand wine? I mean, you carry a lot of both. Do you kind of look at them in through different lenses? You talked about how the the physical land is different. Are the wines do they reflect that? Like in what you look for? Yes, and that uh, that I think is a um, is tied to culture. So colonialism brought with it everywhere around the world, grapevines and among other things. And uh, colonialism really started to happen in Australia um, in the early 1800s, and people would bring vines over with them and such. And colonialism also happened in New Zealand about the same time. But you get people from different regions in, in Europe coming over to the two different countries. And when you're traveling so far away, you're not, I'm not going to go halfway around the world to Australia if all of my family is in New Zealand. You know, so you get these two different groups of people kind of traveling um, to the di two different countries and settling in different cultures, I, I would say. So in Australia, um, it's pretty fascinating. If you think back to the early 1800s, this is before Europe as we know it. It's Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, totally different face of Europe. It's before Italian unification. Um, the map of the world is completely different. The political map of the world is completely different. So um, one of the kings uh, in Eastern Europe created a law that made it difficult for Lutherans to worship. And the Lutherans at that time were living in a country called Silesia, which no longer exists. And um, there was this kind of Lutheran exodus where the Lutherans were like, well, we're out of here. And they all moved to uh, the Brosa Valley. And that is, I think, one of the most important um, migrations for the history of Australian wine, because all of these Salesians brought with them these incredible grapevines. And the world's oldest vineyards today are in, most of the world's oldest vineyards today are in Barossa, oldest Mouved, oldest Shiraz, um, oldest, I think the oldest Cabernet vineyard that I'm, oldest Cabernet Sauvignon vineyard that I'm aware of. Uh, they're all in Barossa and they're all, they were all planted by uh, Salesians. Silesia is now modern day Poland, just so you know. Oh, okay. Um, for the most part, <clears throat> but it's, um, it's the most incredible thing because, you know, phylloxera killed all of the vines in Europe and most of the vines in Europe in the 1890s. And so all of these potentially old vineyards that you could have had in Europe are gone and, um, we can't access them anymore. And, and after phylloxera, all of our farming methods changed. Everybody relied heavily on grafting. So even today you don't find many vineyards on their own rootstock, but you find this in Australia and you find this in especially the Barossa Valley. And that's what's so special and interesting to me because, gosh, I mean, sometimes I see pictures and or I see these vines and they're so gnarly, so big, so old, and their roots are so deep. And I just imagine like, what are they pulling up from down there? Um, because Australia never had phylloxera. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's there, but it's not in the wine regions and everything's very heavily... Um, you know, you have to wear plastic boots when you go to the vineyards and everything's uh, lots of protections against phylloxera coming into the vineyards. Yeah. One time I heard it had to do with like quarantine on ships. Like they were uh, really good about like uh, being careful about ship cargo. And that's part of the reason it never translated over there. With plant matter. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's pretty intense. And that's another reason why I think grapevines are all over the world because grapes are so easy to transport when they're, when they're in their dormancy phase and you can just like take a cutting and it's like a stick and you just tr take it around anywhere and plant it. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, contrast this really old uh, winemaking, contrast these really old vineyards and this kind of European winemaking tradition that evolved in Barossa, contrast that with New Zealand. Um, 
In New Zealand, you have a little bit of the same. You have had grapevines there for a long time, since the 1800s, um, mostly in the north from uh, Dalmatian immigrants. So you have, um, there, there is wine history there that's, that's old. But New Zealand wine for me today has really, really evolved over the last 30 years, 20 to 30 years. And um, 30 years ago, the, cl- the cultural climate in New Zealand was different. There was a real temperance movement. Um, there were curfews on when you could drink alcohol and, you know, no alcohol on the weekends and all kinds of laws like this that really didn't help to foster or, um, or make it easy for people to, to make wine and enjoy wine and uh, to sell it. But then uh, the government got this idea. They're, they're thinking, you know what, we can, this is how we can, you know, present ourselves to the world. This is a major product where we're, we can make a name for ourselves. So you start to have all this investment in New Zealand, um, especially in the late 70s. Late, I'm sorry, late 60s, early 70s, you have the first wave of, of New Zealand investment. So it's crazy to think of how young that actually is. Yeah, it you really know, is. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so these first vineyards that really went down um, in, this, in the late 60s, early 70s, I'm going to just rattle off some of my favorite producers from New Zealand sure. are um, uh, Milton up in Gisborne, um, dry River in Martinboro. Uh, Which is somewhat hard to get, right? Dry, yeah, dry river. Very, really hard to get. Mm-hmm. Um, Adirangi in Martinboro. Uh, there's also Seyfried and Nelson, Neudorf and Nelson, and Ripon in central Otago, um, and Kumio River up in Auckland. So uh, those are some of the some of the like iconic names of the first wave of producers of New Zealand wine. And these people, um, those producers, have some of the oldest finds in New Zealand. And by old, I'm talking 30, 40 years from when they first did their plantings. Um, Ripon's a pretty cool example because they they have planted all in their own rootstock. That's kind of neat. Um, <clears throat> but So compare these 30-year-old vines, which are old for New Zealand, with these 150-year-old vines, which are old for Australia. Uh, it really gives you a lot to work with. Um, and what I find when I pick wines for um, on the New Zealand side, first of all, I have great counsel. Um, our corporate beverage director is Jesse Webster, who's uh, from New Zealand, and he has his finger on the pulse of what's going on there. So I always uh, ask him advice and stuff, and he's great. Uh, but the so when I find when I pick wines for New Zealand, I always try to pick the the oldest vineyards, the oldest producers. But the New Zealand wine um, market is so young that I think that we'll see a lot of cool things over the next two or three decades because the producers that are planting now that are really, they're visionaries, they see there's potential in New Zealand, they're finding great um, great terroirs and they're they're planting their vineyards. But I'll taste their wines, but their vines are only like six or seven years old. So, so you get these lovely, beautiful wines, but you... But they're not, um, sometimes you don't get the complexity that you want from those older vines, you know. So, uh, but I think that from what I've tasted of um, this kind of newer wave of New Zealand planters that's come out, it's, there's stunning potential. And I'm really excited to see what happens over the next 10 to 20 years. Are there different grape varieties that we should be looking for too outside of Sauvignon Blanc? So New Zealand is all about, um, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough. Um, Pinot Noir from Central Otago is pretty much standard. Pinot Noir from Central Otago is amazing and brilliant, and it's one of my favorite uh, wines. James Milton makes the most amazing Chenin Blanc in uh, Gisborne. I've, I've when they're when it's aged, I just haven't had something so beautiful, so rich, so dense, so um, complex. Uh, 
any, it's awesome. Um, it, but some grape varietals that I'm interested in and that I'm kind of looking for in New Zealand are, uh, I love Alsatian whites from New Zealand. Oh, okay. I'm, and not from, especially from Martinborough, from the cooler climate regions where you find um, Rieslings and uh, and Pinot Noirs. I think these these grapes do well. Uh, I've had some, Dry River makes this Gewürztraminer that just blows my mind. And they make a Pinot Gris that's that's incredible too. And if um, if people are farming these correctly, they're, the wines are going to be incredible. Is uh, the growing season fairly long in New Zealand, in those areas? Um, the Yeah, the growing season is longer, um, but the New Zealand does have, remember how I said it was populated by birds for like thousands and thousands yeah. of years? Well, the birds are still uh, pretty popular. And they're hungry. Populous, yes, and they're hungry. So New Zealand has this bird problem. Well, I wouldn't call it, it's not a problem for the birds. <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem for the wine drinkers. <laughs> um, but they're, uh, so they always have to put nets over the vines. And so I think a lot of times people are focusing more on, um, on the flying bird menace. protection. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> because uh, the reason I said it is because also has a long growing uh, season, which kind of helps get the ripeness, you know, in a, in a, because New Zealand's fairly close. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not exactly close to the equator. You know what I mean? So, right. like, it's a little bit further away in the same way that Alsace is kind of further away, yet, you know, because Alsace is in a rain shadow, it's got a long growing season, so they can really... That's why Gewürztraminer tastes like that there. Mm -hmm. You know, so I was wondering if it, like, it works out that way in New Zealand. Well, I... I've never done a side-by-side -side comparison of Alsatian climactic and uh, land features and stuff yeah. with, with New Zealand, but I will say this, that... Um, Pinot Gris I've had from all over New Zealand are incredible and diverse, and especially the slightly off dry ones. Some really beautiful stuff's happening there. Um, and also, the the climate's so interesting, especially when you get down south. Central Otago is pretty much the world's southernmost wine growing region. So it's really close to the, um, it's it's more south than Tasmania, and it's more, it's closer to the poles than uh, than most wine growing regions in Chile. There might be one vineyard in Chile that's further south but um but for the most part you it's down there you have the, it's very cool and um on the southern island you have this gigantic mountain range called the southern alps and they actually block the rain coming in um but in such a unique way so on the on the ocean side of the mountain it's one of the wettest places in the world it's like one of the top three wettest places on the planet with crazy amounts of rainfall and then the mountains completely block all that and when you get to central otago there's almost no rainfall and you have almost desert-like uh, climate, but they're also underneath the um, a hole in the ozone layer. So, oh, okay, okay. And I think that uh, New Zealand will New Zealand winemaking will help bring this um, consciousness about global warming and um, responsible farming to the world because you know everybody in the world is making wine, but New Zealand is dealing with the hole. So, <clears throat> uh, because they because they have this crazy amount of UV light that they have to deal with. Um, the grapes ripen differently. The vineyard workers have to take um, extra steps. They have to wear sunscreen and hats and all that kind of stuff. And and the uh, vine pruning is different. You have to, um, the canopy management, you have to really manage it well if you're going to succeed and make and have good fruit. Otherwise, all your grapes will get, you know, burned from from UV rays. You have to manage it smart. Mm-hmm. Like that guy. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Smart. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Because he did a lot of work with that down there, right? Yeah. In terms uh -huh. of different canopies, and it's uh, and the <clears throat> there's there's really interesting um, 
especially in central Otago where they're, where they're dealing with this, where uh, people do all kinds of fascinating, um, like you have to kind of like shield your grapes with the, with the leaves in a, in a special and unique way. Um, because otherwise the flavors of the grapes get burned. Like there's actually like a burn flavor mm-hmm. in terms of yeah, it's pretty, wine. it's pretty, uh, pretty intense, pretty crazy. And what's the ageability of some of these New Zealand wines? Like if I put them in my cellar, what should I be expecting for different examples? Well, it depends on the producer, sure. but I'll tell you that, um, I had a rip on 93 Pinot Noir. Nice. Awesome. It was amazing. And it could have aged even longer. Um, so, and that's from a young vineyard that in 1993, I think that vineyard was uh, less than a decade old. Uh, so, and, and it was beautiful. It was gorgeous. Um, Milton Chain and Blanc, like I mentioned before, those can age for quite some time too. Kumio River, they do this uh, barrel aging and they make, they're going for like a Burgundian style where they're doing barrel fermentation and, and such. Uh, their wines can age for quite some time. I've had some Chardonnays uh, back to the early 2000s, I think even from the 90s that were drinking really quite nicely. Um, and then Dry River, their wines are just ethereal and they can age for, I mean, I opened up an old Riesling from them from 04 and it could just, it could have just gone, you know, 20 more years. Um, really fascinating stuff. So there's definitely potential for ageability uh, among the better producers. And what's the scene like in Australia? I mean, I guess because it has had a longer industry, we have a certain idea in our minds, maybe about what Australian wine is, you know, big and red. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is Australia? And are there different faucets of what's going on today that are interesting to you? Yeah. Australia, to me, is like this incredible prism and all kinds of different things are going on in every region. Um, what's fascinating is that uh, Australia itself as a landmass is so full of ochre and has the most incredible, interesting soils, especially in the middle of Australia, that aren't really necessarily great for wine growing. And all the wine growing regions you find down south, um, and pretty much all the winemaking is condensed in this, uh, the, on the southern, uh, southeastern um, rim of Australia. Um, if you can get to Tasmania, if you can make it across the Tasman Sea without your boat capsizing. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say without that cartoon character. <laughs> if you can the Tasmanian make it past devil. the Tasmanian devil, you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you do have to watch out for him because <laughs> <laughs> he'll get you. <laughs> it's always in a bad mood. <laughs> um, if you can make it there, there's uh, <clears throat> incredible... Um, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay production. It's cold, cooler climate, sparkling wines. I'm sure if you're a sommelier listening to this, you've tried a Tasmanian sparkling wine. Um, I'm really impressed with them. Uh, the ones that the ones that I've had are are just lovely. Uh, and I think that you know how everybody thinks, oh, sparkling wine, champagne, sparkling wine, champagne. Um, <clears throat> there is a whole other world of sparkling wine out there that a lot of us have tapped into. I'm sure in in a small amount. And um, just to go slightly off topic for a second. Uh, it's, I think it's really cool what Pepe Reventos is doing, how he's actually left the Cava DOC and is creating a new DO for higher quality um, sparkling wine in Spain. And his whole premise for doing that is saying that like there's a whole world of sparkling wine out here and um, we need to we need to like encourage and enhance and nurture the high quality sparkling wines outside of Champagne. And, and Champagne is a great marketing success. It's 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 successful today because of incredible marketing, and um, if newer uh, sparkling wine produ- producing regions can um, 
can get in there a little bit, then then I think that we'll start to see some really cool things on sparkling wine lists. Um, Cava being a certain kinds of Cava or Pepe Rentas new DO or that he's working towards. It's not a DO yet. Um, could be a part of that. And I think sparkling wine in Tasmania could also be a part of that. It's, it's lovely. And there's sparkling wine in New Zealand too. Um, <clears throat> so in Tasmania, you have this incredible sparkling wine region. Um, Barossa, as I mentioned, is is really fascinating. Uh, and then you have these cooler climate pockets in uh, South South Australia. You'll have uh, Adelaide Hills, Clare Valley, Eden Valley, um, where climates are a little bit cooler and you see these fascinating Rieslings, um, really diverse Rieslings coming out uh, of there. So Australia for white, because a lot of times people think red, but there, oh, yeah. there mm-hmm. are some interesting whites. In fact, some of my favorite wines from Australia are white wines. Um, the Hunter Valley makes these uh, mysterious semions that you can age for years and years and decades. Um, I opened up a a 1999 Hunter Valley Semillon the other night, and it tasted so fresh, so um, dense, so crystallized and crystalline. Like it could have just gone, you know, another 20 years. Um, Those are amazing wines. And also um, there's some incredible Sauternes-style dessert wines from uh, Hunter Valley as well, from these Semillon grapes that are um, botrycized. then if you go towards surfing in the Margaret River, that's an amazing place in Australia. First of all, it's right near Perth where you can go and do the most craziest surfing on the planet. Um, but the wine growing region there has really seen its major investment um, over the last 30, 35 years. So Margaret River winemaking has a similar history in terms of timeline as New Zealand and also as California. Uh, if you don't count the older California wineries, if you're just looking at like kind of modern mi- winemaking um, in California. And it's neat to have seen, it's neat to watch the Margaret River um, evolve over time and see what kind of wines they're producing. People have kind of found their feet with uh, Savion Blanc, um, Cabernet Savion, and Chardonnay. Those are kind of the main uh, grape varieties there. And it reminds me so much of California, sure. especially Napa Valley. And they have, a, they have a similar timeline in history. They're making similar style wines. Um, so it's... Sometimes when people come in and they want to drink Napa wine, I'll say, "Why don't you try one of these Margaret River wines? It'll, you know, it'll, it'll kind of remind you of uh, of what that's all about." Uh, it seems like, you know, uh, Australia offers a few parallels like that to, you know, other New World regions where mm-hmm. you can kind of be do that. That like, ah, I know it's not quite what you asked for, but we have this thing that's very similar. Like, right? Like you, you know like I mean? this? Try this. <laughs> I mean, do you I find do that? To be the, the case at the table? That's pretty much my job. Yeah. Because <laughs> a lot of people come in and um, some people know their Australian wines and they know what they like and it's it's great. But then most people that come and see the wine list, they, you know, they're coming to public because they saw it in the Michelin Guide and um, they're expecting. by the way. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> but a lot of people come for, for the star. And so they see, they open up. They come for you. <laughs> oh, you met the Michelin star. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> missed it. Uh, well, so they'll come for the wine list and they'll they'll open it up and I can just see the fear on people's yeah, faces. You're talking about me now. That's what you're yeah, okay. That's cool. Um but it's it's neat and I, I've um I have a wine team that I think is really um congenial. We try to make people put people at ease right away. And is, I tell is all Is it the, all female? Um gosh. Well okay. Every I believe that the most important thing you need to do as a beverage director is educate your entire staff. Oh, okay. So I expect um, every server to be a sommelier, but I do have a couple sommeliers 
and uh, and they are girls. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> but but I've had um, male sommeliers in the past, and I love them. You fired them. They're ma- <laughs> I mean, oh, okay. You love them. Okay. <laughs> They're, uh, so it's not um, it's not necessarily about that to me, but I I do have a, an incredible wait staff and wine team that are really excited about the. They're wine. into it. Yeah, and we do these fun weekly classes that are just totally informal and optional where uh, people can just show up on Wednesday and we open a bottle and we talk about something. And we have the mo- these conversations turn into some of the most incredible um, <clears throat> conversations. Like this past Wednesday, uh, one of our servers is in med school for neuroscience. Oh, okay. And we were, we were just drinking some rosés and talking about rosé, the different ways to make them. And we tasted through a couple um, Aussie rosés. <clears throat> and uh, we started talking about taste and perception and what happens between uh, when you taste the wine on your tongue and when your brain forms an image or a, a taste image or flavor image of that wine in your, in your brain. Um, and it was the most incredible, fascinating conversation. And I'm reading this book now called Neurogastronomy. Have you heard of this thing? No. It's blowing my mind. If, okay, if you're listening to this and you're a sommelier, just go on Amazon right now and buy Neurogastronomy. It will blow your mind. It's amazing how much how little we know and understand about flavor and what flavor is and and what flavor means and smell and taste <clears throat> and so this uh this neuroscience server that we have he um got all these he, he goes to the kitchen and he gets all these ingredients and he's running all these tests with us um kind of making us mess with flavor like for instance we tasted hot sauce with our nose closed and our the back of our mouth closed and it tastes sweet and oh. you, you don't actually experience the heat until you breathe out over it and there's this whole thing called retronasal uh, aroma. That, yeah. That, That's that, like old clothes from the, the, the consignment shop. Yeah, like yeah. Like it's got an aroma and it's retro. It's retro. Like mod <laughs> stuff. And, oh, no, that's not what you meant. You know, you know what? That's like that. my whole closet is retro nasal. <laughs> <laughs> when I open it up, I'm like, ah. Boom, now I understand. 70s, 60s. Like, <laughs> In fact, I think this T-shirt is retro nasal ah, that, that I have on right now. <laughs> oh, and this this necklace for sure. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, but retro, okay, so retro nasal aromas are just really, really fascinating, and I'm reading all about it, and it's it's amazing. Those are the smells that linger on the palate. Yeah, and I think that here's, um, so as humans, we depend so much on our sight and on our, uh, so much on our sight and our hearing, and we don't realize, nobody really develops their smell, their sense of smell or their se- sense of taste and their sense of flavor, which are all interrelated. So <clears throat> as I think, um, our, in our profession, we develop that sense, and uh, we don't really have a way of talking about it or or um, teaching it to others. It's very difficult. It's a personal path for a lot of people. Is is really developing that um, your olfaction. <clears throat> and what's interesting to me is that I think that as I think that I believe that wine as a whole is an emerging discipline. It's becoming a, a thing, and uh, I think it's something that maybe. We're already we already have like wine programs in certain colleges, but mostly for viticulture. But I think that if you, I think that eventually, like wine on the sommelier side of things will enter the university as well, um, and you, or maybe it will just stay with these kind of private organizations, um, <clears throat> you know, giving certifications and stuff. But it's but it's an emerging discipline. You're starting to need uh, accreditation, and the bar is set higher and higher every year. Um, there are emerging wine regions that you have to know about, and and in all of the wine study that we do as sommeliers, we, we, we do tastings and we're like, what do you smell in this wine and stuff? But <clears throat> the development of the senses is so, um, I think, under 
underestimated, underrated, understudied, undervalued. And if people really get in there and find out what's going on in their brain, uh, the whole the whole game can change, I think. And I think that um, neuroscience, like a, a link between neuroscience and, and sommeliers are, are the key to that. So you're saying that when I taste the wine and I sum it up as, whoa, dude, that's probably the basic level where it's possible that we could learn more about how to <laughs> cope with what's going on in our minds and form that into language. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's and this is the thing, the part of our brain that does language and the part of our brain that experiences um, sensations and aromas are different parts of the brain. And I think that's why we have trouble talking about what we smell and taste Got it. because they're just, you know, they're two completely disjointed um, neurological pathways, I would say. But uh, when you <clears throat> when you taste wine, I'm, so I'm reading this book and this one sentence really stuck out at me. He's he's writing about uh, smelling wines, and he's like, when you smell something, you actually create the smell. Most of the smell happens when you breathe out over that. Um, so you you get part of the smell when you're breathing, and then part when you breathe out, and then that smell forms a flavor image. And I and I started to think about it, and that's actually how I have always thought about wine tastes. I always feel like I like I smell a wine, and I form like an a file in my brain and like file it away. And then sometimes if I want to pair a certain thing, I'll walk through the cellar and I'll just like pull up all the files and be like, oh, that's going to go well with this. So, but it's interesting because a lot of people don't form these flavor files or they're not in the habit of doing it. And it's something that I've only started doing the last, you know, what, five, 10 years. And I'm sure you've done it too. And most everybody listening probably has as well. Um, But it's, it would be neat if we could all start talking more about this. I think We we could take it to the next level. Yeah. So what's it like at the restaurant? You have uh, the Daily, oh, which is yeah. the more like the more casual wine bar? Or? The Daily is so funny. Uh, it's funny that you say a casual wine bar. It's a special place. It's um, uh, The bar team would consider it a pre-prohibition cocktail era bar. Oh, okay. Um, Don't, isn't but of that course I consider it. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, oh, I'm going to a bar. Oh, you mean a pre-prohibition <laughs> speakeasy with a guy with a mustache? Um. But it's so bar. The bar staff would consider it that I, as on the wine team, I consider it um, a wine bar. But it's really both. It's a it's a special place. Uh, there's a rotating um, rolodex of 600 cocktails from the date back to the 1850s that were popular in hotels. And sometimes we'll do a modern twist if we can't get a certain ingredient. Uh, but the the bar team in there just amazes me. There, you know how sometimes you work with people and you, they just blow your mind and you can't even believe that you get to work with these awesome people every day. Um, that's what I feel about the daily bar staff. Sometimes I'll ask them for a cocktail and I just can't. I can't believe what they give me. It's just amazing, and uh, and it's and they're really just doing classic cocktails from the 1850s with their own spin on them. Um, and I think that's an incredible um, creative outlet. For these geniuses, and I think that uh, the bar, the bar staff, bartenders today. So sommeliers, we deal with wines that are already made, and we'll smell them and identify the smells and stuff, and create like flavor those flavor images I was mentioning earlier. But a bartender is actually like a creator; they're kind of like a chef, a, a liquid chef, I would say. And um, and it's amazing to see how they talk about flavor. I talk about flavor with them all the time. Um, and we were always talking about uh, like how do you get textures and um, and what sensation are you going for with with this uh, combination of aromas? And sometimes they'll have a cocktail inspired by the most uh, by a color or something. It's it's really interesting to see how their brains work. Um, so I love the I love the cocktail program in there. Every day the cocktails change from this Rolodex, so you can come in like two days in a row and have completely different cocktails. Um, the food changes daily. 
the wines are um, all, I call them honest wines because they're not all, I mean, I, who knows what natural wines are these days, but um, I essentially just, I like to, I look for um, sustainable, organic, responsibly farmed wines. And it, and I like to know the winemakers too. If I know the winemakers and I would, if I had children and I would trust them to watch my kids for an hour, <laughs> then I feel like, okay, we can talk more about about these wines that you're making. And that's um, interesting. Cause I actually look for winemakers who I would never trust with my kids. <laughs> like those are the guys I'm like, you make great wine. You're a little loopy though. And I don't think I would trust you with, you know, valuable cargo, but <laughs> the wine thing, you're doing great. You know what? This could be a thing. Like we could, uh, we could, we could do it like a face off of like wines that like I would trust and the, that you could trust guys. with the kids and ones right. you can't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think that, um, ultimately, uh, it takes all kinds, you know, yeah. you, like I like, I want diversity in wine. I don't want everything to be the same. I don't want to, and I, I'm always looking, I want to have a, a diverse list at all times. And I, and I want to taste different and awesome things uh, all the time. I think that we, I think that the world is really um, homogenized. The world of wine is really homogenized. We're so lucky in New York. We get, we have access to everything here, but um, every time I travel outside of New York, sometimes I'm just uh, appalled. I can't even believe the, the selections that are available and I, are some of those selections Australian. I mean, when you speak about homogenization of wine, is that a little bit of a drop off once you get out of New York for what's available from Australia? Oh yeah, it, I it's so hard. I mean, I feel like there's almost a desert in the in the Midwest, discluding Chicago. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it's in the rain shadow for a wine. It's yeah, in the wine shadow. It's a wine shadow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, of course. The wine diversity seems to follow um, metropolitan areas, and once in a while you'll find a really cool wine shop in the middle of nowhere. But uh, it's it's pretty difficult. But I would say this: I I would say that American wine is is coming up as a, as a whole. Like individual states are doing really cool things. Like I think Arizona has a neat feature. Everyone's talking about Texas, um, Oregon, Washington, California are already done, and I'm from Virginia, which has a blossoming wine country as well. Which I have to give well, a little shout out. When to. you were a kid, you used to work on one of those wineries, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. Virginia. Well, work or play. It was yeah. more like <laughs> run through the vines at. Yeah. Yeah. I just like pick. I probably ate more grapes than I picked. So you had a lot in common with those birds in New Zealand. Yeah. You're like high five bird. I know where you're coming from. Mm hmm. So now it's like I've come full circle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But so you went with your family to like in Barbersville? Or? Uh huh. Uh, so my um, my dad was friends with a guy named George Wilshire who had Wilshire Winery, and he also had a, a girl who was our age. My I have four sisters, so we would go and um, and just like play and run around and hang out and you know see what they were doing. And it was it was really it was a fun fun time when when we went to the to the winery. So you knew from the beginning that wine in America wasn't just California. Oh yeah, and in fact, um, I always thought that. And then when I came outside of, when I left Virginia, I was so surprised that people didn't think that either. In fact, um, in one of my first New York jobs, I put, um, you know, I put some Barbersville on the list and somebody said, we, oh, we're looking for a great, a great wine. And I was like, well, you got to try Barbersville yeah. Octagon. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, this is a great wine. And they laughed and I, and I couldn't believe it. And I was like, all right. Right. And I, and so it's, I take it, I take those situations as a challenge and I say, mark my words. This is a good wine. And sometimes I'll go crazy and I'll just blind people on that and a California wine. And I'll say, you tell me which is which, and then we'll talk. And it's this whole thing about, um, it, I think it all goes back to the perception of senses that we were talking about earlier. People, um, they, they latch on to brand and images and labels as their perception of wine. 
and don't focus so much on the taste. And when I say people, I mean I some don't know. people. Yeah, some people, people out there that we encounter. <laughs> right, and and a lot of uh, you know, it's easy to do that, especially if you haven't dedicated your entire life to wine like right. we have. Like we have. Um, so so I try to be a guide to to these different these different things, and I and I like to blind people on stuff a lot because it makes them think about how they perceive wine and texture. Um, Is it kind of like putting two shirts next to each other and being like, see, this one's famous brand and this one's actually from a boutique shop in somewhere else. And and this one's help. retro nasal. But I'm not going to tell you which one is right. But <laughs> no, I mean, because, you know, when I, I realize that other people must shop for wine in the same way that I shop for like clothing. Like I go through the mall and I'm like, oh, Armani Exchange, that must be good. You know what I mean? I like, know exactly what you're talking out, about. You know what I mean? Yes. And that's the thing. Like I... I feel so uncomfortable shopping. And I always, you know how you see uncomfortable people in restaurants? You can just tell they're not comfortable with ordering or talking yeah. to wait staff. They just don't know how to do it. Um, I am that guy at retail. I'm I like, no, re- I don't need help. No, <laughs> leave who, me alone. That's who I am at retail too. I walk into a retail store and people are like, can I help you? And I'm like, no. And I think that's the same reaction that people have with the wine list a lot of times. They just, they're, they don't know what to do. They And, and so... I, could, I actually consider it my mission and my job to nip that in the butt right at the start, put people at ease immediately, and then and then help them find something. Because it's scary. I think you more. do a really good job at that. And if you don't believe me, go and check her out, Erin Scala at Public Restaurant. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Erin Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.